So, Jay, the Skrulls first showed up on Earth during the 60s, right? No, actually, that's just when they first showed up in Marvel Comics. They'd been on Earth before at least once during the late 19th century. How do you know? Oh, one of them was... Mr. Sinister? Teddy Roosevelt. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 326 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to X-Factor. I I can't remember if we've done an X-Factor episode recently. Like, the way that time is broken in 2020 and 2021, the sequel really applies to my understanding of our episode chronology as well. What do you mean 2021? Miles, today is March 366th. Oh crap, you're right. Uh, As we record this, listeners, it is in fact March 1st of, um, well, I guess 2020 still. That, That would be, again, March 366th, Miles. We had March 1st last year. Oh yeah, yeah, we're all done with that. No more March 1sts, ever. Time is meaningless. Time is is just gone. And the thing is, time is also in the weird slowing down warp in our coverage, too, of, of the 90s, where there are a million X series and a million specials all the time. So it sort of feels like being caught in some kind of double time warp. Although the 90s ain't got nothing on the present day, I have a list of the comics I subscribe to that I believe I mentioned in a listener's question a number of episodes ago, and... As of May, there are going to be freaking 14 ongoing X-Men books, which I would feel worse about if they weren't all really good, and if the ones that weren't out yet didn't look really good. I'm going to go ahead and say that's still too many. Like, I I feel you on the quality, because they are all really good, but that is, that's a lot of books in a line, and it's especially a lot of books in a line, you know, in a a subscription consumer-based model, and and I I suspect that we're going to start seeing some degree of consumer fatigue around that. Maybe, or at least wallet fatigue, but they're all wonderful. I don't want to get rid of any. I love them all equally. Well, I don't care for Job. Thank you, Lucille. Anyway, X-Factor. So... We are still in the Howard Mackey run of X-Factor, and in fact, the remainder of X-Factor Volume 1 will be written by Howard Mackey, and some stuff happens in these issues. Now now I'm just thinking about Arrested Development parallels, and specifically Magneto as Lucille Bluth. Yeah, I can totally see that. Yeah, and and I'm I'm shamelessly stealing this from Waiting for the Trade, which has definitely done the, I don't care for Pietro. I mean, fair enough, Pietro. (laughs) Anyway, let's talk a little before we dive in about what's been up lately in X-Factor and what their deal is. Oh, Lord. Well, despite having those sweet, sweet government job benefits, the government-sponsored mutant team X-Factor has had very high turnover, possibly due to the fact that, you know, they're kind of shilling for the man. We've lost Havoc, Wolfsbane, Multiple Man, Strong Guy, Quicksilver, and Random. Which is saying something, considering that Random was never actually officially a member of the team. I feel like it kind of depends on which writer you ask. I think at least some writers assumed he was. I feel like they might have been technically mistaken. Probably true. I mean, we're right. We're experts. The members that remain from the earlier lineup are Polaris and government liaison Forge. Well, plus Val Cooper, if you count her. Speaking of government liaisons. 
Eh, she's ambiguous, even if she does wear the X-Factor spandex sometimes. The ambiguous Val Cooper. Filling out the team's ranks are comparatively new members Wild Child, an import from Alpha Flight. Mystique, rendered slightly less villainous by an anti-mischief cybernetic implant. And Shard, a holographic representation of Bishop's sister brought back from the future, which isn't at all confusing. I don't believe Shard is officially on the team at this point, but that may be because at this point she also doesn't quite officially exist. Again with the ambiguity. As far as Forge, well before his X-Factor days, he was a different kind of government employee, specifically an American soldier in the Vietnam conflict. Now, in Vietnam, his platoon was wiped out in an attack, and Forge used something called the Spirit Spell, which was part of his shamanic training from his Cheyenne heritage, to sacrifice the souls of his dead allies to summon demons and tear apart the attackers. As one might imagine, Forge swore off magic after that, focusing purely on questionably less problematic practices like, you know, selling weapons to the government. God damn it, Forge. He couldn't stay away forever, though. Years later, Forge's shamanic mentor Naze called Forge into action again, because the adversary, a trickster spirit-slash-chaos god, was attacking Earth during the Fall of the Mutants crossover. Forge, at that point, was able to seal away the adversary by sacrificing the souls of all of the X-Men, at that point alive, not, you know, dead as his comrades in Vietnam had been. Um, What he didn't know is that Roma brought them back immediately afterwards, so Forge, believing he had killed all of his teammates— super vowed to use magic never ever again, this time for real honest pinky swear. Aside from that one time where Ilyana tried to kill him using demon stuff, it was a whole thing. Alas, the adversary is once again back, thanks to possessing the fetus inside a pregnant spiritual leader. Long story. Might have been the fetus from the start. Yeah, we've gone through that before, but honestly, too complicated. Let's just move on to all of this stuff. Fucking X-Men. Fucking X-Men. Let's begin with X-Factor number 119, The Best Offense. This is written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Steve Epting, inked by Al Milgram, colored by Glynis Oliver, and lettered by Comicraft. And while we're framing this with the adversary stuff, the bulk of this issue is, thankfully, a break from that plotline. First, though, so let's let's get the adversary stuff out of the way fast. The adversary's coming, Forge is driving himself into exhaustion, and his teammates with him, trying to prepare some kind of complex electronic defense. Mystique is giving Forge a ration of shit here. She's super frustrated and also constantly fucking with him, as she has tended to do since they first met. But she also makes some kind of good points. Oh, she makes some extremely good points. She is pointing out that he is pushing them to finish a thing, but he won't tell them what they're doing or what they're getting into. Nobody else seems concerned about where Havoc disappeared to. It seems weird to me that Mystique is concerned about that, but, you know, whatever. And in general, she feels like Forge is is jerking the team around, and her in particular, since she's basically been conscripted onto it. This part's a little weird, though, because Mystique is asking just who the hell this adversary guy is, and... The reader who was paying any sort of attention during Fall of the Mutants would remember that she played a major central role in that crossover and was right there dealing with the adversary's bullshit the first time. All of that said, due to some speech bubbles that may be misplaced, it might just be Polaris saying all of this stuff instead of Mystique. It's unclear. It's definitely Mystique, at least partly, because she's asking if if she's just an indentured slave to X-Factor or actually a member of the team as... 
as you know Forge has claimed. So that that's got to be Mystique just based on her relationship to the team and her role within it. I do think that the nobody else cares where Havoc's disappeared to stuff was supposed to be Lorna. It doesn't really make a lot of sense for it to be anyone else. We didn't really go into it in the previous Leon segment, but Havoc, while he went off into an obvious trap without telling Polaris, uh, yeah, he, Polaris just assumed that Havoc left because he was being the moody jerk that he often is, and so she hasn't chased him. In her defense, that's pretty par for the Havoc course. And we'll get to more of that later. Now that leaves Wild Child at Shard, and they are both having pretty rough days. Wild Child is still mourning his relationship with Alpha Flight's Aurora. They had a spectacularly um explosive final breakup a few issues ago. Like, literally explosive. It was impressive. There were indeed explosions. Mm-hmm. I'm still trying to figure Wild Child out. Like, he's been on the team for a couple arcs at this point, and I don't really feel like I know who he is. Part of that may just be that I haven't read the Alpha Flight that he was in. I don't know, but honestly, I shouldn't have to because he's a new member of an X-Book. I feel like focusing on what his deal is should be a priority of the book. Like, we get a little bit of it here as he's talking about how he listens to music to kind of let out the animalistic part, even though he's really sort of a quiet, shy dude himself. But I don't know that it really comes through. What do you think? He also rides a ridiculous, enormous motorcycle and hoots a lot. So, like, I, I think that he's he's overestimating the extent to which he is reserved under other circumstances. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think he's a, like a lot of the dudes I went to middle school with who were actually kind of quiet and awkward but wore no fear shirts, hoping that that would somehow make them less so. Or, or perhaps fearless by, by association. Or perhaps. Now, Shard is having a more objectively difficult experience in that she is she's a hologram. She is basically the projected memory of someone who died a while ago, and she is extremely glitchy and largely intangible, so she's just having a lot of trouble with existing, period. I need to give the art team some props here, because we see a technique uh, showing Shard that we've seen a number of times before. Whenever we see a hologram or a dream sequence or a memory where the inks are very soft and almost faded and the colors are sort of washed out as well. And I think that works especially well with a character like Shard, who's a hologram in the real world. So she's drawn that way. The rest of the world is drawn more comic book normal, and it really does highlight the contrast in a way that I think shows the separation that she's experiencing. It's also a fun way to consider how much more profoundly saturated the real world of comic books is, because Shard herself is still very, very, very bright and very, very, very saturated, just, you know, slightly less so than the stuff around her. You're not wrong. I feel like superhero comics are kind of the opposite of the last couple decades worth of video games, where the colors were brown, 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 gray, and brown. Oh yeah, they they definitely still live in the world of hypercolor t-shirts. I feel great about that kind of miss those. I, I definitely wrecked my mom's by putting it in the freezer to see what would happen. You found out what would happen. Yep. Yep, I did. Science! Listeners, if you don't know what a hypercolor t-shirt is, then you're probably younger than us, or older than us, come to think of it. Uh, ask the internet. It'll tell you. So, when you do that, you might want to keep safe search on. Not really because I think there's disproportionate porn related to hypercolor things, but honestly, there's porn of everything and it's horrifying, and I feel weirdly protective about, like, the idea of kids googling innocuous trends from our youth and finding awful stuff, so, I don't know. Would you like to read my The Doctor slash Hypercolor slash Harry Potter fic? It's filthy. I would not. 
That's good. I didn't write it. So let's talk a little bit about Shard, because we got to know her pretty well in the Bishop miniseries since we had a lot of flashbacks, flash forwards because they were in the future, flash somethings, where she was kind of a pretty serious character. Like she took her responsibilities in the future cop organization that she was in very seriously. And the Shard we see here is really different. I mean, I think the Shard we see here is one who is in some ways much better able to adjust to her current circumstances than Bishop is. The Shard we saw before was one who did her job, took her job seriously, but didn't seem to be her job in the ways that Bishop is. And this is a Shard who is living in a different era, who is enjoying herself, or enjoying the aspect of of living in this era that she can enjoy, and who's really kind of trying to look for who she is and where she is in her new form. Like, she has been thrown a major, major loop by life, and she's adjusting really well. I think she's almost overcompensating a little, though. Like, I really appreciate her fuck-it attitude toward everything. And again, we saw that in the Bishop miniseries, too, when her holo form was just drawing a bunch of horrified stares as she was lounging weightlessly on top of Bishop's speeding motorcycle and stuff like that. Like, there's a certain I-don't-give-a-shit to Shard that is really fun. Yeah, I mean, this is a Shard who is is circumstantially flexible, and— She is frustrated with X-Factor. She's frustrated with everyone there. She's really frustrated that Forge is going and doing his big mystery project, not telling anyone what's going on, and refusing to work on her tech, basically preventing her from really fully existing consistently. So she decides Wildchild is the only member of the team who seems like they are going to be any fun, and he's got a big motorcycle, and she digs motorcycles, and they should go out and find some music and maybe start a fight. And indeed, they do. And it's kind of great. Like, these are the two least developed members of the team, and so saying, the hell with it, let's just throw them into a mosh pit, is kind of great. Literally, as as we'll get to in a moment. So I, I legitimately really like their dynamic, and I really like also the way that Shard's very different standards for appearance and things like that reframe the way both Kyle and the reader see that relationship and see him within it. Right, because we keep hearing that Wildchild is super ugly, even though the way he's drawn just makes him look a little blocky-faced. And Shard mentions that she thinks he's kind of cute, and he would be seen as kind of cute in her time, and he's just—he's so happy. Like, he's just so desperate for anyone to want him in any sort of way, which means maybe he shouldn't have been such an asshole to Aurora, but whatever. And it's adorable and kind of heartwarming. Okay, so— They end up at the sort of concert that has a pit and where people wear ripped up black flag t-shirts, which Shard, as a huge fan of the oldies, or at least the oldies of her era, immediately and inaccurately identifies as a rave. I will never get sick of future person in the present fish out of water humor. Well, Shard in particular has a very, very Diana Warrior Princess grasp on pop culture, which I appreciate deeply. Once again, we should probably mention what that is, because I think it's a pretty obscure reference. Okay, Diana Warrior Princess is a tabletop RPG that basically approaches more recent history, maybe like the last 400 years of it, the same way that fantasy RPGs approach, like, the early Middle Ages through the Renaissance. It's extremely funny, it's obviously wildly and deliberately ahistorical, and yeah, it's 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 a great, um, wow, these time ta- travelers did not do their homework paradigm that results in some the kind of mashups that are much funnier if you know exactly why they're inaccurate Mm -hmm. pretty great thus for instance diana warrior princess unfortunately there's always some fucking nazi at a punk show 
In this case, they are the friends of humanity. Shard knocks them out with a plasma blast with very little problem. Um, and she and Kyle ditch. And outside, they are about to kiss when, of course, she fritzes out again, leaving Kyle to head back on his own. I... I'm kind of annoyed with with completely fictional character Kyle Gibney at this point because he acts like she ditched him and she didn't like this was no more voluntary on her part than it was on his. Yeah, I bet she wanted to make out, too. Right. And like he could at least go home and jerk off. She just fits out of existence. Oblivion is way worse than masturbation, like way, 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 way worse well, uh, I guess that's our theological statement of the episode. Exactly. Listeners, you're welcome. So Kyle heads back and stops and talks with Lorna. Now, Lorna had tried to stop Shard and Wildchild from leaving earlier. And Wildchild does some really nasty stuff to her about why Havoc had left. And now he apologizes and they sort of take a few minutes to catch back up and commiserate over the fact that they both have massive relationship issues. After which Lorna decides that Alex can probably go fuck himself if he's just going to keep disappearing. As she says, All day long I've been staring off into space and trying to figure out what I did wrong. How I could have kept Alex around. After everything we've been through, he just leaves. Just like that. I don't care that he has his own problems to deal with. We were together and he should have come to me. Well, he made his choice. I love him, but right or wrong, I'm tired of crying over the pain he keeps causing me. He'll be back when he wants to come back, just like always. But I won't be sitting around waiting for him like a good little girlfriend. Kyle, I think it's time we both get on with our lives. Go Polaris. That's a very healthy attitude at this point, honestly. It is, although I was thinking about her and Alex's history... And the only time I can think of that Alex actually deliberately left Lorna was after a shark almost fell on them from space and he wanted to talk to the X-Men and she just wanted to, like, work on her degree. And I guess there was that time that Alex left for Hawaii after Madrox died and he got all mopey. Okay, so that's twice, which, come to think of it, maybe that is enough for her to say, fuck this, I am not dealing with this a third time. Honestly, I feel like Madrox would have been enough on its own. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. It's not that Alex is having all these problems. Like, she doesn't care about that. I mean, she cares about it. She cares about him. But it's that whenever he has trouble, he just bails. Like, he doesn't ever try to cooperate with her, to commiserate with her. He doesn't let her listen. And I guess with the space shark thing, okay, maybe he had a point there. Maybe the X-Men did need to know about sharks falling out of space. But still. Well, and he doesn't really communicate about what he's going to do especially when it's something risky and stupid that puts her at risk as well, which is the case most recently. Less so than in Hawaii. Hawaii was just generally a dick move. Yep, yep. Oh, Alex, your life is so terrible, and while not all of it's your fault, kind of a lot of it is. Oh my god, he's like Mark Trail. In what way is Alex Summers like Mark Trail? You shouldn't lend either of them a boat. Well, that's true. Or the X-Men, especially if you're Angus McWhorter. I guess that was a hovercraft. Oh, I thought you meant that you shouldn't lend either of them the X-Men, but that's also probably true. Yeah, yeah, don't give them anything. They can't be trusted. I mean, Mark Trail is, is wildly impulsive and destructive. He does have one long-term stable relationship, possibly two if you count the fireman I'm entirely certain he's been sleeping with. <laughs> that's right, listeners. Come for the X-Men, stay for the continued references to Mark Trail. We'll get you okay. reading it yet. 
Okay, Mark Trail is amazing, and actually, I, I want to say there's there's a new cartoonist on it as of this past, I believe, October, uh, Jules Rivera, who's doing a really phenomenal job updating it to more modern sensibilities and discussion, and and her exhausted five o'clock shadowed millennial Mark Trail is is my heart. Like, he's gone from the character I find I, I love because he's he's kind of hilariously awful to the character I love because he's kind of hilariously awful in relatable ways. Yeah, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense these days. Comment section is terrible, though. Don't read them. That's just good advice in general. Except for our site. Its comment section is lovely. Y'all are great. You should just, like, go hostile take over the Mark Trail comments. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in favor. Well, that brings us to X-Factor number 120, Meeting the Maker. Written, as always, by Howard Mackey, penciled by fill-in penciler Mark D. Bright, inked by Al Milgram, colored by Glennis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So... Mark D. Bright. I mean, he's no Steve Epting, who is, of course, phenomenal, but I feel like Bright's a decent fill-in. You know, he captures the same rough style, aside from the occasional off-model face here and there. X-Factor is still helping Forge set up his defenses for the ever-approaching adversary. It kind of reminds me of, like, half the Juggernaut stories out there, where it's just everyone setting up these defenses that won't work, as Professor Xavier explains his weird, weird past with Kane. Which gets weirder every time. It really does. My favorite incarnation of that was the Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends episode, uh, because Firestar in that show, of course, is a member of the X-Men, mainly because we get to see the most, like, continuity off-model X-Men ever with truly bizarre voice acting choices. Oh, that's the one where Thunderbird can turn into a bear, right? Uh, different episode, same show. Okay. So, which is the one with the really, really psychedelic Doctor Strange-esque labyrinth in the mansion? Uh, that is called the X-Men Adventure, and it is incoherent. No, it is It is the X-Men having the sort of adventure that you have when you eat a lot of acid. Right. I mean, you know, it's a slightly different Marvel Universe. There's just more acid. So much more acid. I mean, arguably the X-Mansion is just made of it. Oh, pretty much. People just keep licking the walls. It's a terrible plan. Anyway... F- Forge's defenses are not, as far as we know, made of acid. Uh, they do, however, include these enormous goddamn X-Force-sized, like, suitcase-looking guns, which, okay, it's Forge in the 90s. Yeah, he's allowed to do that. I, I buy that. No, no. They look like they are made out of cardboard boxes and silver spray paint. Well, right, but Forge made them, so you know they also work. I'm sorry, I just I keep thinking about Thunderbird turning into a bear for no reason. <laughs> Not no reason, just not much reason. I mean, I guess if you could, you would, but still. Right? Well, Thunderbird's not here. Uh, The book does finally remember that Mystique was there for the fall of the mutants, though. Uh, At one point, Forge snaps at her about having retreated during the final fight with the adversary, and she snaps back that that's only because Blob was carrying her away. So I feel like this is actually a good way to do this. If you forget about continuity as a writer of a comic book— the next issue just mentions something specifically about that continuity. You don't need to go and justify why it was not mentioned last issue. You just move forward. So, well done, Howard Mackey. Yeah, maybe it just didn't come up. Maybe it came up between panels or between pages or in a private conversation that occurred entirely outside of the issue. It's possible. Roma's still here. Roma, of course, being the guardian of the Omniverse and the daughter of Merlin. She's really pissed at Forge about this because, hey, she is a magic lady, and she knows that he should be a magic man, with presumably magic hands, and that all of this technology is not going to work against the adversary. Well, first of all, 
he's really only going to be able to, to get one magic hand going here. Second, does Roma's presence in this story feel weird to you? Yeah, I feel like Roma's only here because she was here during Fall of the Mutants, working with Forge. Like, Roma's a fascinating character, I like her a lot, but her main job here seems to be to be very tired because she's casting spells in the background, and to yell at Forge in the same way that the character Naze will also later yell at Forge. So, so this is a Josie and the Pussycats because I was in the comic, duh, moment. Pretty much, yeah. But I do love Forge's response to Roma when she talks about how he needs to go with his magical heritage. He holds up a giant boxy gun and growls, action movie-like. This is all the heritage I need. This gun is my real mom. So, Jay, does it make sense for Forge to be so violently anti-magic right here? Like... I know he was after Fall of the Mutants, but then the X-Men came back to life. It was clear he did not, in fact, kill them in Fall of the Mutants, and I feel like he's at least been kind of balanced between magic and tech since then. Forge's relationship to magic is like Storm's claustrophobia. It's the arc that just keeps coming back. Yeah. Well, as Forge and Roma bicker and X-Factor takes up defensive positions, the adversary, who has by now gotten to X-Factor's base, is watching from the bushes, sort of looking through the leaves, which seems kind of mundane, given that he is a literal god. Yeah, well, he's he's kind of powered down in this story in general, and we're going to get to that a little bit later on as we're talking about the re- resolution here. But yeah, no, he's just kind of watching from the bushes, and he decides that that Mystique is is ripe for corruption as as he giggles to himself. Now, let me see who I can find to assist me in this latest bit of mischief. Like, is he going to steal 40 cakes next? I mean, come on. No, this is actually nowhere near as fun as that. That's the thing. I He's a trickster figure, right? Uh, yeah, he's the trickster figure, depending on how you look at it. He never does trickstery stuff. No, you know who he reminds me of, Jay? Who? He reminds me of Malekith the Accursed in Thor the Dark World. Oh, I thought you were going to say Jim Shooter. Well, I never thought about that, but... Well, anyway, no, because Malekith the Accursed in the comics is a really fun villain. He's super evil, yes, but he's basically like Loki without any morality. He's just pure mischief and chaos and utter lack of empathy, and he's an enjoyable character. And in Thor the Dark World, he was just this dour motherfucker who did evil because it was evil. And that's no fun, and this version of the adversary makes me think of that, like all the fun's been taken out. He was also a tragic waste of Christopher Eccleston, which should be a crime. I know, Eccleston can be so good when he has good things to work with. Well, Eccleston did a good job with what he had to work with. Apparently, a lot of his part in that movie was cut to make room for, ironically, more Loki. And Hiddleston is great as Loki, don't get me wrong, but Malekith. I love Malekith. That's okay, Thor the Dark World still had a really cool heist scene, so I'll forgive it. Yeah, heists go some way. Mm-hmm. Moments later, Naze, Forge's mentor, who has been dead at least three times at this point... You think that's going to stop him? Exactly. Walks out of the bushes to yell at Forge about fate. But Forge knows this ain't Naze. He knows how Naze moves. After all, they used to dance the tango. Well, also this Naze is fluorescent pink, just like the adversary. Eh, it's just energy. Turns out, though, this is Mystique, albeit Mystique, possessed by the adversary. She does a few of her usual tricks. There's the three examples of women you know tease that she shifts into. There's the you can't deny our chemistry tease. 
And then she tries a new one, which is the shape-shifting into a bunch of people at once and begging Forge to kill her tease. Is, is that some kind of pickup artist trick or something? I mean, I feel like maybe that would work with Sabretooth. Yeah, maybe. I wouldn't want to pick up Sabretooth. That sounds unpleasant and dangerous. Well, he's very heavy. Yeah, that too. The adversary finally does come out on his own, in his own body, physical incarnation, whatever, and faces down Forge and the rest of X-Factor who have gotten here by now. It doesn't go well. It doesn't. It looks pretty cool. I mean, the sky is like swirling purple and black overhead. But again, remember, the last big adversary story, The Fall of the Mutants, we saw the entire city of Dallas overwritten by this space-time warp. I mean, there were dinosaurs and cowboys and Civil War soldiers, and, like, the weather had just gone mad. It was genuinely apocalyptic. Like, that's the level of power the adversary has. And so here, even with a legitimately rad sky, it can't help but feel like a bit of a letdown. Yeah, this is personal, but it's not interestingly personal. It's just like, well, I'm going to do it smaller because I'm just going to go after this group. Anyway, he does. He he kills X-Factor at this point. He reduces all of them to dust. Yeah. Then he turns on Forge and challenges him to do what Forge has done in the past. Would you do it all again? Would you raise the spirits of your fallen comrades to avenge their deaths? Let's find out. Forge refuses. He fires and fires and fires guns at him. Doesn't work. Adversary crushes his guns, rips off Forge's prosthetics, and tells Forge something that has never been explored before, namely that the adversary was the one who was responsible for what happened in Vietnam with the spirit spell. Yeah, probably the defining trauma of Forge's entire life. But we won't hear much about that for now, because the adversary wanders off, just as Naze wanders up. It is shaman time. So this is actual Naze now, yeah? This is actual Naze. Now, it's unclear how Naze is alive, because like we alluded to, he's been killed multiple times, and there's never really a good explanation for how he comes back. I assumed he was basically a force ghost. Maybe, but he does seem to be physically incarnated. Like, he seems to be a dude here. He's not glowing blue. Yeah, but I don't know if Marvel had the Star Wars license at this point, so, you know. No, this was in between licenses. I think Dark Horse had it at this point. But anyway, this is the real Naze as far as we know. And this takes us to X-Factor number 121, The True Path. Written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Steve Epting, inked by Al Milgram, colored by Glynis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And Jay, this is Steve Epting's last issue of X-Factor. Oh, man. I love his work on X-Factor so much. I especially love his version of Mystique. He just completely gets the subtleties of her facial expressions, of her body language, also of her rad costume. Yeah, I was going to go somewhere pretty similar, and we're not going to see anyone of that caliber on this book for a while. No, no. I mean, we are kind of big Steve Epting fans, so I'm sure we're biased, but alas. Steve Epting opens with us back in the Vietnam War. In those faded colors and light inks we mentioned that if they don't mean holograms, mean flashbacks or dreams— Uh, This, spoiler, is a dream. And in this dream, Forge is with his troops, who are dying just like they did in real life. This time the troops are X-Factor, getting torn up with some pretty grisly injuries. I mean, injuries that are described, not drawn, because comics, but still. And they're begging Forge to not use the spirit spell on them if they die, to not sacrifice their souls and make it so they can never rest. 
Forge wakes from what turns out was a vision, and he's he's just devastated. He feels strongly that he can never be a shaman again, his tech has failed him, and like the Tyrannosaurus Rex, all his friends are dead. I do really appreciate that we don't get the classic Claremont reversal where on the first page of this issue it turns out it was a misunderstanding and they're fine. Like, X-Factor stays dead for kind of a while, and in a format where issues were coming out with a month in between each installment, like, that's kind of gutsy and cool. I mean, they stay dead for about the length of an issue. Still. I, 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 would, I would consider a while to require at least, like, three months. Like, they die in one issue, they come back in the next. Okay, fair point. But it is magic time, as we alluded to before. Naze and Forge head off to the Rockies in Colorado to Forge's home, specifically the mountain that has been the source of his magical power in the past, like in Fall of the Mutants. This is also the mountain where the adversary, posing as Naze back in Fall of the Mutants, had convinced Storm that it was Forge behind all the dark magic going on, at which point Storm stabbed Forge and tried to kill him. Let's be fair. There are a lot of reasons to stab Forge. Mm, true. So, let's talk a little bit more about the art. Not only is it beautiful because it's drawn by Steve Epting, but it looks really cool. But here's the thing. Forge's look, which I really like, is very much a mystical, Native American, presumably Cheyenne, uh, shamanic look. And I tried using Google to see what Cheyenne war paint, especially, like, mystical war paint, looked like. I have no idea. I could not find it. I know almost nothing about this culture or this area of history. And so I don't know how to feel about this, because what we have here is a number of non-Cheyenne, non-Native creators going into a fictionalized mythology of a real-life culture and religion. And that's weird. And, like, Forge looks super badass with his loincloth and war paint and cybernetics and stuff, but, like... I don't know how much this would be appropriation, and so I'm not really sure how to evaluate it. Well, there's also the question of, again, how accurate it is or isn't, which, as you said, isn't something that we can speak to directly. And we know historically that the representations of indigenous culture in general, both Native American and and, um, Native Australian, in X-books have tended towards the inaccurate and fetishistic. And so I think it's really, really hard to give something like this the benefit of the doubt um, with lack of evidence to the contrary. Fair. I mean, don't get me wrong, like having non-white characters and non-sort of mainstream white American cultures is cool and all, but eh. Well, and there's also the extreme mysticization of a living culture and spirituality without the involvement of the people being portrayed and that's on its own again pretty iffy like the extent to which even accurate detailed representations of private or intense spiritual rituals or internal rituals of any given culture or group are appropriate to use as a fictional cool magical element in a comic book is pretty arguable especially if it's something that's not the culture that the the people making the comic are coming from. This all brings me back to how a lot of these stories could have gone. Now, this is apocryphal. I don't know that we have confirmation, but from what I understand, way back in Fall of the Mutants, that story wasn't supposed to be about the adversary at all, which presumably means we wouldn't have seen this Native American mysticism that we saw there and now see here. Originally, as I understand it, Chris Claremont had intended to use 
Jim Jaspers, the Captain Britain character behind the Jaspers warp in the place of the adversary, and at the same time he was planning to use the Fury also from that Captain Britain era in place of Nimrod. I think there were some rights issues because those were Marvel UK creations from Alan Moore's run, uh, and slightly before Alan Moore's run in the case of Jim Jaspers. I don't know, but if that was the case, I don't know that we would have had the adversary at all in the Marvel Universe. Interesting. That's really interesting, and especially because the Fall of the Mutant stuff associated with the adversary is really Jasper's warp-flavored. Exactly, with reality just sort of squishing together from different places and times and concepts. And, I mean, I feel like I we're, we're going to get the inevitable comment that I kind of want to forestall and address here about, well, how is it how is it bad to show something from a culture? How is it worse to show something from a marginalized culture? And the answer is, it's complicated by the fact that you're talking about, especially in the case of indigenous Americans, cultures that were actively and violently suppressed, like, by the dominant group. And it's one thing to take bits of folklore from groups that, that again, you're not necessarily part of a group that, that benefited from the direct suppression and genocide of and use them in stories. And it's a really different thing in the circumstances we're describing. That would be for, for really pretty much any white American author to use pieces of Native culture without active involvement with and from Native writers and you know cultural consultants and that kind of stuff. Uh, I will once again take this opportunity to hype Marvel Indigenous Voices, a one-shot that came out not too long ago. Really, really cool stuff. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Anyway, back in this story, I mean, I feel like we could go on about that for a long, long time, but I feel like we're also pretty unqualified. Yeah, but I feel like it's it's important to address it at least, you know, incidentally in, in covering this stuff as all, at all, especially as, you know, two white American critics talking about this from an outside perspective. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But uh, in the meantime, the story. So Naze hands Forge a couple of things. First off, the knife that Storm stabbed Forge with back during Fall of the Mutants. And second off, the nullifier gun that Forge created that took away Storm's powers a little bit before that. Essentially, symbols of magic on the one hand and technology on the other. Where did Naze get them? Eh, probably found it while he was off-camera being dead. And Forge is ultimately going to go for the third option, which is going to be both, but it takes him a little while to get there. He he kind of has to think through it. He has to walk through it with Naze, and finally he has to find himself facing the adversary again. The adversary is, you know, his risen to his full power, at least his full power in this story, which again is a really slim shadow of what we saw in Dallas. Well, he does at least rise to his full visual power because Steve Epting's powered-up adversary looks awesome. Like, he's this enormous, furry, muscular red demon, but his head is just this shadowy mass of teeth and burning eyes and this huge, like, stream of hair that just is a big, messy brushstroke. There are kind of some shades of demon bear here, and I super dig it. I feel like you're overselling the number of teeth. Well, okay, there's a reasonable number of teeth, but they're real scary-looking teeth. He's no Bloodscream, I mean, who is? Bloodscream. And no one else. Maybe Mystique sometimes. Yeah, good point. Oh man, if I was Mystique, I would totally shapeshift into Bloodscream just to look badass. It would be kind of hard to talk with those teeth. 
Do you think it's like vampires in Buffy and Bloodscream lisps when he has his teeth out? I think he mimes. You know, if he just decided to be a ghost pirate out of nowhere, I feel like he could also decide to be a mime out of nowhere, and I think he'd be pretty good at it. I think the idea of a ghost pirate Bloodscream who kills people but also conveys his motives through interpretive dance would be amazing. And I'm ignoring, of course, the large, large range of nonverbal communication techniques and technologies available to do this because I just think interpretive dance pirates are a really funny idea. Legit. We do need a follow-up to X-Men Unlimited number 9, so maybe it can go in that direction. Interpretive dance pirates with enormous teeth. Marvel, call us. Yeah. So the adversary points to X-Factor's corpses, which A, are suddenly here, and B, are suddenly not dust, so clearly some weirdness is afoot. Dude's got reality warping powers, I'm not worrying too much about that. Exactly. And he tells Forge, he knows what he needs to do, right? Spirit spell? Spirit spell? Eh? Eh? And Forge says, you know what? Yeah, but not quite like that. So Forge channels the magic from the mountain that he's standing on, from his heritage, from his own soul, through the power nullifier gun, shoots the adversary, and somehow zaps out X-Factor's imprisoned souls to put them back in their body. It's not important. The important part, honestly, and I'm okay with this, is the symbolism, as Forge says. This is the true strength of the spirit spell the essence of which has been hidden from me for too long. The spirit spell is not to be used to destroy, but to create life, to make order. And I am the Maker. And X-Factor is resurrected, and the adversary is banished, and all of this happens on the last page, which, you know, fine, whatever. But let's talk a little about the symbolism here. Because I feel like we have a couple different types of symbolism going on. We have the order versus chaos thing, which makes sense. I mean, the adversary is chaos incarnate, and Forge has decided he's order incarnate. But we also have the duality of technology and magic, both of which are inside that kind of order bubble that Forge has decided he is. Does that work? Is that too many concepts to throw together into one thing, into one person? I don't think it is, because I think both the technology and magic are part of the larger order concept for Forge. What he's doing is he's looking at them and he's saying, I'm not tech, I'm not magic, I'm order in ways that can encompass both. That's a really good way of looking at it, yeah, and I dig that, and I think this actually fits Forge really well. Like, this isn't a good adversary story, but I think it actually is a good Forge story. Agreed. This is a solution and a resolution personal to him and that work really well for him. Overall, I think it's it's this is the kind of story I sort of think of as adequate, but the resolution is one that I like for the character. Yeah, you know what it reminds me of, actually? I do not. Excalibur number 50. That was the big showdown between Phoenix and Necron, which had been built up to for issue after issue after issue. And it was a one-on-one fight for the most part, but the actions of Excalibur were still informing and leading into that one-on-one fight. Here it feels kind of the same, like it's Forge versus the Adversary and X-Factor isn't directly involved. But maybe it's because it was so abrupt. Maybe it's because this isn't Alan Davis. It just doesn't feel as earned, and I don't think it works as well. Yeah, we'd been leading up to that fight that you're talking about for so long, and it was so beautifully built up and so climactic. This one, we've had, what, like an issue of build-up? Two issues, I guess, technically. And then two issues of a fight that was 
really lackluster in comparison to the last time we saw this villain. So, yeah, yeah, I, I just, I don't feel like it really holds up. Again, it's not bad, it's just not really special at all. It does raise a question, though. Who do you think is the Farron of X-Factor? Okay, well, let's see. In the case of Excalibur, Farron wanted Rachel Summers' Phoenix powers, and here, Forge is clearly Phoenix, so who wants Forge's powers? Who wants to use technology to make basically whatever? Okay, I actually have a theory about this. It's not a one-for-one, but I'm going to go with Rusty Collins. What the hell does Rusty Collins have to do with this? He's an old X-Factor character that died ignominiously recently in space. But everyone forgets him, and then he makes a heel turn. Oh. Yeah, yeah, okay. Do you think we'll see Rusty Collins on Krakoa anytime soon? Do you think that even the incredibly dedicated, continuity-fixated current writers care enough about Rusty Collins? I'm sure they're aware of him. I'm not sure that they care enough about him personally. Okay, well, uh, I know for a fact that at least some current X-Writers listen to this podcast, so um, you have my vote for using Rusty Collins, but also please make him interesting, because he usually isn't. I'm pretty indifferent. So is most of the world. So is- I thought you were going to say, so is God. (laughs) So is God. Anyway, that's most of this X-Factor arc. We do have a little bit more going on in the B story of all three issues, in a section I like to refer to as Val and Victor. Oh god, can you imagine a sitcom where they're like wacky roommates? Val Cooper being an uptight government agent and Sabretooth just like tearing apart wild animals in the living room. And yet somehow still Val would be the bad roommate. Yeah. Did that ever bother you about sitcoms? That bothers me about sitcoms. Oh no no, I meant somehow she would find worse things to do. Oh. Yeah, good point. Well, anyway, the last time we saw Val Cooper actually was not in X-Factor. It was in Sabretooth Special Number 1. She showed up at the end, after Sabretooth had been shot and possibly killed, to bring his body back to the government. And that's where we find her, in, you know, government land. So, he's alive, and naked, and heavily restrained, and he's got a fancy new collar— So, the deal with this collar is that if Sabretooth attacks anyone other than his leader-designated target, especially a designated ally, it zaps him right in the brainstem. This seems designed to fuck up. This is like the not-going-evil switch on Doc Ock's arms in the Spider-Man movie. Yeah, very much so. And, uh, spoiler, yeah, it eventually will not work out in the least. But, for now... This Mystique-esque technology, because of course Mystique herself has an implanted microchip that prevents her from morphing into her allies, this exists for a specific purpose. The government wants to put Sabretooth on X-Factor, and I'm going to give Val more credit than we've given her in the past, she is actually against this. She thinks this is a terrible idea. And she is correct. She's so correct. I mean, okay, for one thing, Sabretooth and Mystique have, like, horrible history together. We've been through that. For another thing, Sabretooth is Sabretooth. And for another another thing, the team already has a tracker. They don't need another one, especially one who's Sabretooth. Yeah, who has a long, documented, storied history of killing all of his teammates. But Valerie's boss doesn't like any of these excuses— especially the one about the team already having a tracker. He says, I believe, Valerie, you will see in the times ahead you can never have too many hounds. 
Aw, shit. Because we know the word hound in the context of X-Men. However, it's not going to go anywhere this time. The hounds in the Earth dark future of Earth 811 are mutants who've been brainwashed into becoming trackers of fellow mutants to take them down. That's in the Days of Future Past timeline. That's what Rachel Summers was before she was unbrainwashed and then eventually sent back to the past. Now, this story is this 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 hint isn't actually going to go anywhere. This is this is a red herring that is is going to to founder and die on the pier, but you know, it's it's dangled there for just that moment. It's a shame it doesn't go more places, and I, I will say, at least Howard Mackey does bring this up repeatedly. This appears to have been a story element that he wanted to include, and it just never became a big deal. But this is a cool way to do it. I think one of the most powerful things about Days of Future Past as a story is not even the story itself, so much as this specter that hovers over all of X-Men, as you wonder, okay, if things go really badly, are we going to get to the dark Days of Future Past? future. And so the idea of introducing hounds, especially hounds working for the government, is chilling. Absolutely. And it also plays up on X-Factor's complicity in mutant suppression. Absolutely. It also also makes me think of the use of hounds in The Gifted, which I think was one of the strongest plot elements of that show. Now, we do our best to explain the X-Men as they come, but of course there are a lot of X-Men out there and a lot of listeners, and you have questions. Aaron asked us via email, On your website, whose voice should the text in the episode descriptions be read in? So, as far as the episode copy, that's the text that goes with each episode on the site, and the as-mentioned posts, uh, Jay, you do most of those. I do. I write almost all of those. But episode copy voice is a fairly distinct voice. I don't really use it for anything else. And it is slightly hybrid-y between the two of us. So the answer is, is, is not Jay, and it's not Miles, specifically that copy should be read in the voice of Jeff Bennett. Maybe we should explain who Jeff Bennett is, or at least this Jeff Bennett, because I feel like that's probably a common name. If you have seen the television show Avatar Legend of Korra, Jeff Bennett is the radio announcer. And that's who I'd like you to think of when you're reading any copy that I have written for the Explain the X-Men site. And the other advantage of that is you'll get through it much more quickly, because Avatar Korra announcer voice is really fast. That said, I do want to give Aaron some credit here, because when Aaron wrote in, uh, Aaron correctly identified that a post about our website having tech issues was written in my voice, because I was the one that wrote it. So, well done, Aaron. Also, oh, so many technical issues lately. We're, we're still working on those as we uh, record this episode. I hope we're done soon. Yeah, I feel like maybe we should talk about that a little bit on the show, because we've posted on the site, we've posted on social media about that, but I don't know how many people follow those we are aware of the feed issues. We are aware of the website issues. We are doing our best to troubleshoot those with our hosting company and with a number of other directions. It has been a long, complicated, laborious process. We're working on it. Hopefully by the time this episode goes live, everything will be just fine. I'm optimistic. I'm going to say it will. That would be exciting. Claire asks via email. Oh, hi, Claire. I work in higher education, and I've been helping students wrangle accommodations lately. What keeps surprising me is how many things I've missed. Today, it was color coding. You've suggested already that Cyclops could not use color coding, but do we see any evidence of accommodations like sight, braille, signing, dyslexia, audio processing, or mobility, other than Professor X and his, oh look, I don't need it now, wheelchair, among the X students? Or is this one of the places that the mutant metaphor falls apart because superpowers fix everything? The latter, for the most part, at least until kind of the current era. 
there was there was one brief nod to that in the Exterminators miniseries with the school that Artie and Leech were sent to. That was way, way back during Inferno days. But you see almost no discussion of the intersections of mutation and disability, which is bizarre because, as I've said, disability is in some ways one of the more on-the-nose things for mutation to stand in for or read parallel to, but it's also something with which mutation should absolutely intersect. This is this is something I can go on about at length. This is something I've written and given papers on. And yeah, it's it's something that that we're seeing more direct attention to now than ever before, but the bar for that is just so incredibly, incredibly low. One little thing I did really appreciate was back in an old issue of Wolverine, Jubilee mentioning that she has dyscalculia, uh, which is trouble with math to vastly oversimplify. It's a learning disability. And uh, I don't know. It's just a nice little acknowledgement that real-life disabilities, especially the often invisible kind, can absolutely coexist with mutation and in a way that Shi'ar technology can't just directly easily fix. Yeah, um, this is this is again. This is this is a horn that I will I will toot, as if I were Doctor Doom tooting as I please, um, and just just over and over because I think it's something that that X Men comics really need to address more directly than they have, and especially in a school environment and context. The best look at this I've seen is actually in a very recent issue of New Mutants by Vida Ayala. That run, by the way, is phenomenal so far. Just freaking phenomenal. There's a character named Kosmar who is a mutant who, kind of like Chamber, had her body heavily altered by her powers when her powers first manifested. She has kind of a a distorted-looking physical form. She's purple. She's very asymmetrical. And without giving away too much, she asks some of the older X-Men about whether, essentially, Krakoa can use its abilities to get her body back how it, quote, should be. And there's a lot of argument about, well, isn't this how it should be? Isn't this okay? But she still feels like she's different. She wants to be more normal. And I think that's a great way to just sort of address the way that disability is often minimized in superhero books, to just directly talk about how, okay, if we have stuff that could, quote, fix this, well, should we? Is it actually a problem? It does make your life hard, yes, but does that mean there's anything wrong with you? Like, I like that we now have comics that are asking these questions and having these discussions. Yeah, there have been some really interesting ongoing, mostly online conversations um, about this stuff with regards to a number of characters. The two who stick out most in my head are, are Daredevil, Matt Murdock, and Steve Rogers. Tell me about Steve Rogers. Well, think about what the super soldier serum is and does relative to his base state. Oh, right. Steve Rogers initially is someone who's pretty severely chronically ill and disabled. Like, that's that's part of his identity and part of what he's grown up with, and it's an identity that I think is still central to how he interacts with and deals with the world, even as Captain America, and part of the basis of his ethos as Captain America. But it's the, the question of, of whether it's something that's just making him more or fixing him or how that, again, how that interacts and how those identities interact is is one that there is at least informally a pretty large amount of conversation about. And you're going to ask for links to this, I know. I'm sorry, it's mostly Twitter conversations. Twitter is confusing. There's some really good fanfic, I think, I remember. I wonder if it's fanfic about that hypercolor stuff. Seems unlikely. 
seems unlikely. It is unlikely that we somehow are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Right? We're nonsense people. Why do they like us? I don't know. Uh, let's ask the angry Claremontian narrator. Maybe he has something to say. You're not what you once were, Dan Pinsk, and you could almost convince yourself it's worth the trade-offs you've made. That is, if Jadzia Axelrod hadn't shown up to ruin things. Again. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in New Fairfield, Connecticut, in exile from Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Cable fights a brainwashed X-Force. As Sebastian Shaw continues his return from the dead. (laughs) 